Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, and welcome to this week's episode of Stock Club, coming to you from the top floor of my Wall Street HQ here in Dublin, Ireland. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Caron. Before we start today's episode, please hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to us on to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Today, we're talking about Shopify's success, the recent troubles 2U has had, and why Spotify is starting to look like a good investment. So guys, we're in the middle of earnings season at the minute, so I thought we'd kick off today with some of the big winners and losers from the My Wall Street app so far this month. Um, one of the biggest winners so far has, surprise, surprise, been Shopify, what's new. They were up 7% since their earnings call last Wednesday. They're up 150% since the start of the year. And since we picked them from My Wall Street in January 2017, they're up 700%. They're best performing stock in our app so far. What's going on at Shopify at the moment, Rory? How much are they up since uh, Citroen Research gave them a $60 price target? <laughs> you have to get that jab in there. <laughs> yeah. How many times have they have they short sold them? Um, multiple times. Mm. You never really know because they just, when it doesn't work out for them they just don't mention it again so yeah. you never know when they've covered them <laughs> uh, yes Shopify is just I mean like if you're looking at Shopify at the moment we looked at them what three years ago now years, at least yeah. and and even then it was kind of these kind of high risk high reward plays because you weren't really sure how it was going to work out they had a great platform but you know with this intense competition you never really knew if Amazon was just going to come in and kind of wipe them out but the numbers they continue to publish are just really impressive. You yeah, know, you look at them now, as you said, up seven hundred percent, is it or yeah. something like that? And any sensible person would say they are ludicrously overvalued. <laughs> it's just like the numbers are just crazy. But every quarter they just come out with these numbers that blow people away. You know, um, revenue from merchant solutions was up like fifty six percent. Uh, subscription solutions were up 38% and gross merchandise volume which is the amount of money that's flowing through that platform was up 51% like wow. that. you know those are just numbers that just blow people out of the water and um, Shopify what Shopify have done so well is they've created this platform where what they're really doing is they're creating they're a valuable relationship between suppliers or sellers and kind of end users or, or shoppers and Shopify are kind of agnostic to who wins in this world you know if to them yeah. it doesn't matter whether your website works or not and they they don't have um, churn numbers they don't give out churn numbers but you would just assume that they're very high and in fact you'd kind of be uh, worried if they weren't very high because I think that was the basis of Citroen's report that it was the churn numbers yeah exactly you, they don't give them out but you'd expect them to be high in this in this scenario because what they're looking for is people who are starting totally new businesses um, and most new businesses don't work out and most people will start a website and they'll see no demand for it or they'll, they'll the logistics won't work out for them and they'll give up very quickly so you know if, if Shopify didn't have 
high churn numbers, you'd be thinking, well, they're missing out on a massive part of the market because mm. that's who they really want to be grabbing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for them, the people who do win out then end up becoming long-term customers of theirs. And yeah. So, yeah, so when they do have these businesses that succeed, what they end up getting is like a long-term valuable customer that's going to stick with them for forever, really, because the, the effort or the stickiness of the platform means that people aren't going to, you know, they're not going to risk what they have in a successful business and moving it to another another site and like moving it to Wix or moving it to um, Weebly or any of the other ones. Um, so yeah, so what, where the real competition is actually occurring on Shopify is between the, the people who do the piping, you know, the people who are creating the apps that you can buy on the Shopify app store for your website or the logistic companies who are now through Shopify fulfillment all kind of jockeying to get the best prices in terms yeah. of getting the most uh, business from these these suppliers and that's a really powerful position for Shopify to be in and you know still looking I mean you still look at the at the valuation today and think how long can this keep going but yeah I mean they they just keep hitting hitting those numbers out of the park every quarter so you know I wouldn't bet against them just yet it's 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 nearly a perfect example in the case of FOMO because I remember I looked at them back in January I, I already own positions in Shopify I looked back in January, I was like, oh, I might wait for a while. And <laughs> yeah. you're just watching it go up and up and up. Past price appreciation is very often the strongest indicator of what's going to happen in the next quarter or two. Um, and funny, Peter Lynch's book, One Up on Wall Street, advocates that you should really try you know, sample a product before you commit to investing your dollars wherever possible. And we here in my Wall Street had reason recently to set up um, a, a sales cart on a web page and this building is full of people who are well versed on building websites and digital products and um, without any influence from any of us here in this room uh, Shopify was the chosen uh, mechanism to do so because what they did was better and yeah. that's the exact summary but it was easier it was better and now we have I can also see post integration or post build how they've suddenly very quickly wired themselves into a way that it's going to be it would be difficult to move away you need to prove with proper documentation that your bank account belongs to the business and you are a proprietary director or whatever there's a whole bunch of paperwork yeah. that goes into them that you go oh I don't have to do this again See. so when they're in they're in and yeah. from our customer journey perspective they were chosen because what they did was easier to do and looked very well in the bottom line results. So, yeah, walking that customer journey um, and I won't list competitors that we tried, uh, but we looked at all the big names and Shopify was the one that Alejandro, our, our, the head of my Wall Street Labs, went with. Cool. So from the lofty heights of Shopify down to the lows of 2U. So this company lost nearly two thirds of its value last mm -hmm. Wednesday in one day incredible drop I don't think we've ever seen for a company in the Wall Street app before. Um, what happened? Yeah, well, so Tuyu is the leading provider of software as service solutions for non-profit colleges and universities uh, to deliver, in their own words, high quality education to qualified students anywhere. Uh, their mission, the business's mission, is to eliminate the back row in higher education, which is quite cool. Um, I guess in simple terms, uh, to you share tuition revenue over the life of really, really long contracts with universities and colleges. Yeah. Um, in fact, they haven't ever lost a contract. So whether it's Syracuse or Harvard, Yale, Georgetown, Northwestern and countless other world famous schools, um, they're in there and they've kind of gotten into digital bed with all these great 
um, education houses. Yes. So what happened? Um, so last Wednesday, I think, the business announced its Q2 results, which from a rear, rear view mirror perspective were pretty good. Revenue was up 40% year on year. Expenses were well up too, but neither revenue nor costs were the reason that the stock got slammed. Um, and I would say, to your point, uh, James, I have not seen, it's a very, very long time since I've seen a stock drop 66% in a matter of hours. I, yeah. I tried to remember the last time I saw a business um, fall so dramatically from such a high and um, it kind of goes around to summer or fall of, of the year 2000. Okay. Wow. Um, after the dot, that, that's just, I mean, obviously companies have fallen yeah. since then, but just certainly You've been aware that, of, yeah. that I've been aware of. So it's, uh, I can't specifically recall the last time I saw this. So it was definitely dramatic. So what, have, what really happened well, CEO Chip Pausick was downbeat in his outlook and very unspecific to boot. Okay. Um, and to quote him directly, he said in the quarterly call, as we deliver our full portfolio of educational offerings to new and existing partners, we are also setting to you on a defined path to profitability by tempering short-term growth projections and leveraging our scale to drive greater operational effic- efficiencies across the business. Um He's some bard, really, to be able to just <laughs> <laughs> say that. I presume it was written down. He must down. have taken uh, courses in creative <laughs> writing bet, or something. Absolutely. Uh, so he elaborated that this means the reduction of planned program launches next year, in yeah. the year 2020, and the year after in 2021, and deferred giving any detail until their investor day in November. So clearly, this is not good. Yeah. The market's reaction was tantamount to announcement that the game is over. Okay. Like a two-thirds drop. Uh, but you could restructure and rebuild what was announced to say that we are going to grow slower than planned because we have to figure a few things out. Okay. And the language was ambiguous and the targets were vague and in fact non-existent. So, but the story wasn't um, doomsday. And um, so there is going to be growth. There is no change in the company's strategy. They're still the market leader in their space and they have a long-term vision and for me, there's no new competitor entering the space at this moment in time. Yeah. And to see a two-thirds fall, for me, feels like it's an announcement that Google are now going to create and push a platform into every university. So um, I believe, and I thought that the reaction from the street, the money leaving the stock and the drop in the share price was an overreaction. Yeah. I may prove to, it might, uh, that might not be the case, but I mean, as Rory would often say to me, I mean, I like them at nearly 100 bucks. So I decided <laughs> I still like them at 14 bucks. Um, now, that doesn't mean that um, you would open it's, a, new it's position. a business without risk. I yeah. mean, clearly, the collective voting machine that is the stock market has dumped to you until they know what happens, what's happening rather. And November invest, Investor Day will tell us a lot more. Um, and if uh, Pausek is smart, he has now been as pessimistic as possible Yeah. Um, within his constraints. And from here on in, he has a lot of opportunity to underpromise and overdeliver. Um, basically, we have a business that has multi, multi-year and decade contracts with the biggest educational brands in the world. Mm. They're growing slower than planned and their stock is now down at around 14 bucks share. 
um, which is a hell of a fall from its high of something like 98 bucks a matter of months ago. Isn't that a worry that um, rather than like one big competitor coming in, it, it seems or the, the tone I got in the call was that technology is kind of caught up with the company. And yeah. These colleges are now able to kind of do this stuff without them. So there's these smaller colleges offering their own courses and not really needing, not necessarily just needing to you, but yeah. you know, there's more options out there for people who want to get into that online education space. Um, I think that was that was probably the most worrying thing that they, yeah. that you know the, this we'll do t- it ourselves. Yeah, well, the do yeah. it yourselves. People are going to catch up with them. I'll tell you one person who was um, quite bullish on them following the drop was Catherine Wood. Oh yeah, so you remember oh, yeah. Uh, two thousand dollars on Tesla? Is that she had four thousand dollars? Oh, good. Um, I really hope she's right. on, on Tesla. <laughs> Catherine <laughs> Catherine Wood's a, a fund manager, by the way. For people who don't know, she runs uh, Arc Investments, which. Uh, only invest in disruptive technologies. So uh, Tesla's one of their biggest uh, investments and they invest in companies like Twitter and NVIDIA and basically any company that's kind of trying to twist twist uh, the industry around a bit. Um, they bought 2 million shares uh, right. a day. And do you know what price they got per unit? Well, I don't know. what I didn't see exactly what price they got to you, yeah. but they at one point held a large position in to you and it was twenty two dollars. Right. And they sold seventy five percent of that position when it when it spiked into the eighties. Wow. So I think what they're looking mm. at now is like you know, a few years ago we were buying yeah. this company at twenty two and its yeah. revenues were about forty million a year and now it's yeah. about, you know, two hundred and eighty million a year, yeah. or whatever it is. And yeah. so they're happily got, getting back in thinking yeah. that it's uh thinking that's gonna bounce back up. So Yeah, um and I suppose universities are not notorious for moving fast. Um, decisions are made slowly and committees are assigned to every purchasing decision. And having a turnkey provider with, with the brands behind them, such as Harvard and Yale, yeah. walk through your door to say, well, digitize your curriculum. Um, universities, while they absolutely have the intellectual capital in-house to do pretty much anything they so wish, I think the kind of we've done it everywhere else and we'll do it for you here is still a reasonable sales hook yeah. and for each of them each uh, college and uni to get their own act together, I totally agree Rory it's, it is amazing that you know that to you is still managing to lock down its its um, vendors if you like for multi multi year contracts um, but it seems to be the case for now and uh, and it's, it's, it's quite reassuring to hear ARC are putting a few books in as well. So moving on then, one other winner we had in the My Wall Street app, and I call this our under the radar winner. It could probably be the company we never talk about, which is Blackline. So they reported their earnings last week and they jumped, shares jumped close to 30%. Rory, what is Blackline? <laughs> well, first of all, I was actually off on Friday, so I yeah. didn't see this <laughs> this jump. I came in on Monday and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. What happened there? Yeah. Um, Blackline is an accountancy software firm, which essentially, I mean, I'm not an accountant, so I don't know exactly what they do, mm. but they do all the annoying bits that is used to be do, take up an awful lot of time in the accountancy department in terms of, you know, checking all the financials, especially when making sure the public companies have all their uh, their SEC information correct. Yeah. And like that. Um, but one of the reasons I really love the company is the CEO, um, She's just an absolute visionary in this mm-hmm. space. I think she's one of the very first people to move her software onto the cloud far, far before bigger companies like Adobe and um, and Autodesk and those mm-hmm. figured out yeah. that cloud was the future. I think it was like 2006 uh, they'd moved themselves onto the cloud. 
And yeah, it was a really, it was, uh, you know, it was a strong quarter for them. Revenues were up 26%. They doubled their operating cash flows, brought their free cash flow from uh, 1.6 to, I think, 6.2 or something million. Still small figures for, but for a company their size, it's all going in the right direction. And they added 106 new customers. And now there's nearly a quarter of a million end users using Blackline software. Um, Funnily, there's one thing that kind of, I think most people would have skipped over in the report was that Blackline was named the Accounting Automation Platform of the Year 2009 by Corporate Vision magazine. And that's always a kind of thing. Companies throw those in all the time in their quarterly earnings report kind of just to fill in a bullet point line yeah, and make yeah. it look a bit longer. Yeah. There's always some sort of award you can win during a quarter. But I think the, the, the actual name of the award, the Accounting Automation Platform of the Year, was interesting because when we talk about automation, we always kind of instantly go towards self-driving cars mm. uh, or the robot, the robots in the factories who are willing to work 24 hours a day for no salary. But the real automation that's happening right in front of us is in software. You know, and Anderson Horowitz talks about software eating the world. Yeah. And I think we're seeing this more and more with software companies. And these the companies that can deliver automation through software and get companies to save money and be more efficient are going to yeah. are really going to be handsomely rewarded over the next 10 to 20 years. And I actually think a recession is not going to stop that. In fact, I think it's actually going to accelerate it. Yeah. And so companies yeah. like Blackline, companies like Workday, companies like ServiceNow. It's cost cutting. Are, yeah, they're like the, this enter, these enterprise software companies that, that that lower a company's costs and deliver operating efficiencies are really power, like powerful mm. uh, in the world we live in today. So Blackline's one of those and I'm, I'm happy to see them doing well because I really like the company. It's still quite a small company. It's well only three billion dollar market yeah cap. very coming in there's a lot of competitors in the space it's you know, um, accounting is one of those kind of I suppose low hanging fruits that a lot of automation companies saw because there is so much repetition there is so much stuff that can be automated easily but uh, le- you go with leadership and I think um, the CEO of Blackline is a really strong contender for one of my favourite CEOs yeah yeah moment. she's awesome one company not in my Wall Street app at the moment, but I know, Rory, you've been doing a lot of research on them recently, is Spotify. They also reported their earnings recently. Um, what are you What are you feeling about Spotify these days? Not to confuse with Shopify. <laughs> yeah, I was, t- I was twisting my tongue over there. Um, you know, like, so we've been talking about Spotify for ages. And yeah, I think, I think you know. most of the office are customers, probably. Yeah, it's one of those businesses that I'm a big fan of the product, but for a long time haven't been much of a fan of the stock, and you and me have talked about it quite a lot. And the reason I was kind of bearish on it so far is that it was one of those technology companies that really had very little control over their costs. So you look at kind of big tech companies, usually their biggest costs are fixed, or at least they control them, you know. So R&D spend, sales and marketing, they've got someone there who budgets that every year, and that's how much money they're going to spend on on their biggest costs. Whereas Spotify's biggest cost is royalties. So actually, you know, those are marginal costs that rise as their revenue rises. So Spotify, for the size it is and the amount of customers it has, its it's gross margins are still only in like the mid-20s, which for a technology company is tiny. You know, you look at companies like Google and Facebook are in like the 90s. Uh, so that was always one of the reasons why I never was a fan of uh, Spotify. Um, uh, because, you know, when you only have 26% gross margins, there's very little you can do down the line. You never, you, you really need to ch- really boost revenue in order to make that business profitable. And they have been profitable um, on a free cash flow basis. But, you know, it, the reason why I'm kind of, recently I've kind of, 
come around to them a little bit more. I'm reading a bit more about them and I'm slowly coming around to the potential the company has. And I'll just make three really quick points as to why I've come around to that. Like, one is I used to work in radio, so I know quite a few people who work in the music business. And I've seen, I've talked to them, and the value that Spotify brings to the music industry cannot be understated, um, particularly when it comes to kind of discovery of new musicians. Yeah. Those, there's people who work in the music industry right now whose entire job is to get artists onto those Spotify playlists like... Um, New Music Friday, uh, yeah. which is, I think has you know, millions of followers. So, so, so that's quite powerful. Um, then another thing is that they're leveraging the platform in really interesting ways. And an example I saw just a few weeks ago was that there was a gig announced by a singer called Lizzo, who um, is very popular at the moment. Uh, but it was in a very small venue here in Dublin. Um, she was actually booked in that venue months ago and kind of in the interim has kind of blown up Exploded, and become a, yeah. a, a big star. So there was a kind of a demand supply issue going on there but what Spotify did and what they have been doing is they've allowed promoters to pre-sell tickets to people who follow uh, those artists um, and I think that works really well for both the promoter and Spotify first of all the promoter is targeting people they know that want the tickets yeah. and for Spotify you're not only are you driving people onto the platform users onto the platform but you're actually getting them to engage in the platform form by following uh, the artists that they like and signing up for email alerts and all that kind of stuff. It seems so, like a much fairer system for the customer as well. Yeah, well, like, I mean, t- if tell, you're a fan, <laughs> you get get first first dibs. Tell that to the people who were uh, who were queuing up at ten o'clock on Friday when they were all sold out, sold out in like thirty seconds. Yeah, that's um, why they should subscribe to Spotify. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but finally, I think one of the most recent moves Spotify make is in is in podcasts, and that's very interesting because. Even though podcasts have been around for 15 years, I think we're actually entering a real golden age of them right now. And there's no central authority really controlling the value chain in podcasts. It's very, very dispersed yeah. and diffused. And Ben Thompson, who writes for Stratechery, uh, sorry, has, made, has written about this a lot. And he made a really interesting point, which I agree with. And that's there's a real big opportunity for one company um, to own podcast advertising to be the Google of podcast advertising and to bring it all together on one kind of platform yeah. and I really think Spotify has the potential to be that platform because they've already got an advertising business for the people who decide not to pay for uh, the subscription yeah. and now they own Gimlet one of the most popular podcast uh, producers out there yeah. and they've also bought a company called Anchor which is one of the listing uh, podcast listing platforms which helps people monetize so they're, they're, they're building a kind of little platform there that could potentially become a one stop shop for getting your podcast monetized and I think that could be a real interesting place yeah. for them to go down and a place where they can get much higher margins so they'll, they'll stay on the My Wall Street shortlist for now yeah, yeah, climbing up us. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on then. Um, so we won't have any company we never talked about this week because we just talked about four companies. <laughs> so um, I read a book. Rory, you were reading a book recently, just to keep you talking. <laughs> yeah. So uh, back to I read a book. I haven't done one of these in a while. Yeah. But, um, I'll start off by talking about a book that we have talked about before that isn't the book I'm going to talk about fully but it's by Malcolm Gladwell I'm sure a lot of people have read it's called Outliers Yeah. Uh, and Malcolm Gladwell or this was kind of the book that popularised the notion of the 10,000 hours that you have to do in order to become an expert in something this book's kind of um, an argument against that the counter argument it's a book called Range Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialised World by David Epstein um, Epstein has wrote a book before called The Sports Gene he's, he's had a lot of jobs but most notably he was a reporter for Sports Illustrated um, and in keeping with that he starts the book by looking at two famous athletes uh, one of whom 
it appeared, was destined from a very young age to be a superstar in his chosen sport. So his entire childhood was dedicated to it. His father basically made it his life's work to ensure that his son had every opportunity to excel. Uh, the other athlete was very different. Uh, though both his parents were coaches for the sport he eventually mastered, he didn't actually take it up properly until his late teens. Yeah. Uh, he was really sporty, played lots of different sports as a child, but he never took really any of them very seriously. In fact, his mother actually refused to coach him because uh, he kind of messed about on, on, the, on the court and didn't really seem to have much drive to advance. So I might have given it away there on the second one. But the first athlete was Tiger Woods uh, and the second athlete was Roger Federer. Uh, so uh, one was highly specialised from a very young age and the other really was a generalist in terms of sports. He okay. was really into soccer in particular, um, but never took up one um, in particular until he took up tennis kind of in the, when he was 15, 16. Yet both of them managed to rise to the highest level that anyone could rise to in their chosen sports. So uh, so that's a kind of, uh, will set the scene for you. The, the book is all about specialists versus generalists. So yeah. people who really focus on one particular thing versus people who have a broad knowledge base. Um, and he starts talking about the, there's two different kind of learning environments. One's called, was called kind learning environments. And these are places where patterns repeat over and over and feedback is extremely accurate and usually very rapid. So um, golf is a very good example of that. Chess is another good example of that. You know, even though there's loads of different moves that can be made at a certain level, very similar patterns start to emerge and the real chess masters can see the solution 10 moves before because they've seen it so many times before that. Yeah. Then there's the opposite of that, which is called wicked domains. And these are where the rules of the games are often unclear or incomplete and there may not be repetitive patterns or they may not be obvious or the feedback might not be rapid it might often be delayed or it might even be inaccurate uh, so wicked domains are something like kind of cancer research where you know there's it's not even that it's you're trying to find the solution you're you're really trying to ask you're trying to you're figure trying to out what the right, way, yeah. you're trying to figure out what the right question is to yeah, begin with you okay. know? Yeah. Uh, so the book goes into re- loads of different topics from the way we teach children to the kind of books people should be reading to the way in which we should think about a career Years. Um, and like Gladwell does in Outliers, he gives like loads of really good examples, uh, some of which you'll know, like you know Vincent van Gogh, mm. who didn't start painting until after he was 30, um, to a guy called Gunpei Yokoi, who basically saved Nintendo by creating um, the games that brought Nintendo through the, the 60s and 70s, and, okay. and he eventually created the Game Boy, um, using what he called lateral thinking with withered technology. Uh, the idea being that Nintendo were never going to have the most technological uh, equipment, so yeah. but therefore they had to think laterally and come up with the best way of using old technology. Okay. So if you think about the Wii, um, when Nintendo went about buying, creating the Wii, they had there was PlayStation making the PlayStation Four, I think was it three or four, and Xbox yeah. were creating you know the next generation of console. We rather than compete with them in terms of graphics, actually like pulled back the graphics, made the games really simple, and created the motion it was just uh, so niche and different from what was out there. Exactly, much. like yeah. creating it, creating a kind of total what we call like a blue ocean um, opportunity for yeah. themselves. And uh, one of the really interesting things was they talk about a company called Innocentive. Uh, which was created by a former, um, where was he working? I think he was working in uh, Ellie Lilly, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. The company you mentioned. Um, and this, he started this new company, which allows companies from all disciplines to put out problems into the world and invite anyone to try and solve them. Uh, so, and they found that people who have absolutely no 
background in science or chemistry or biology or engineering come back with these really elegant solutions that they've just thought up with because they have this broad knowledge base across various different things. Yeah. And it kind of points out that people who are highly specialised often can't see the solution because they're yeah. so entrenched in what they're, in what they're looking at. And the parallels then with you know investing then are, are quite clear already. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, I was going to... I, <laughs> I, I, I ruined gonna, your preamble, I was sorry. building to that, James, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> you, James, you know. come on. You're in the end. It's lateral thinking, Rory. I got there before you. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean look, absolutely. You know, you, the, there's people who work on Wall Street who focus very specifically on certain industries, um, who focus on utilities or energy or, or pharmaceuticals. And what we do here, I think, is an awful lot more generalised. We try and look at businesses from what's the world going to look like in 10 years, you know, and that that, yeah. that means we don't need to have that specialised knowledge in particular industries. And yeah. I think that's definitely kind of what we try to do through this podcast. And yeah, through absolutely. The write and, and, and the books we recommend. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me when I was a kid, I went to study guitar and my music teacher at the time, um, Tony Lennon said, uh, true discipline comes freedom and learning modes and different chord structures on the guitar you know, was was something I had to work through. And, you know, he was always emphasizing when you've learned it, forget it. Yeah. You know, yeah, because yeah. you just want to know you can refer to this stuff, but you don't want to be constrained by it. And I think that's another way of just paraphrasing what Rory said, which is, you know, very often if you are constrained by the rules you've learned through academia or practicing something in a certain way relentlessly, you actually cease to see the alternatives and a big, big believer in that. Yeah. And it, it comes back, Rory, I think you might have said this before. I think it was in talking to a customer that like the one thing you need to start investing more than anything is just a general interest in things and have that 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 want to just find out more about different parts of the world and if you can invest in companies through that kind of general research all the better yeah absolutely it might be actually useful just to mention right now that Rory uh, James and I are looking uh, for someone to join our team and that's uh, that very thing we've just discussed is what we're looking for someone we you know as a the best stock investors come with just a huge appetite for information and an open mind and in, and in our world the ability to express themselves so you know if you really believe you have something special in that space and have a track history that might support such a claim uh, drop us a line so to finish up with that uh, job posting <laughs> Stock Club sponsored by ZipRecruiter <laughs> I wonder do they have to pay us for that now yeah. <laughs> um, so we have loads of new stuff in the My Wall Street app for August we've just published our most recent stock of the month. Um, it's a company with probably one of the best economic moats you could ever have. Um, we also have a new stock edition coming and a brand new expert opinion piece in the next few weeks, so keep an eye out for that. Don't forget, we also have our first seminar event coming up called In Person. This is your opportunity to meet the My Wall Street Analyst team and absorb more than 25 years of ex- investing insight in one day and apply them to your own portfolio. If you want any more information about In Person, please send an email to seminars at mywallstreet.com. That's seminars at mywallstreet.com or visit the link included with the notes for today's podcast. Um, jargon Busters. So we have two questions for this week's Jargon Busters. Emmett, I'll come to you first. Um, there was a big sell-off in the market on Monday and you were talking to a few of our um, the My Wall Street community and you mentioned dollar cost averaging in a kind of time of uh, turbulence like this. Yeah. Do you want to expand on that just a little bit? Sure. Well, the rationale for dollar cost averaging is in turbulent markets, your your best strategy is to buy a little often as a 
opposed to a lot at a distinct point in time. Yeah. And, and it's basic math, um, mathematics to say that, you know, you'll automatically purchase more shares when the price is low and fewer shares when the price is high. So rather than saying, OK, I'm going to buy a thousand books worth of Acme bricks today, I'm going to buy 50 books worth of Acme bricks on the third Thursday of every month until I've, you know, until I'm yeah. done, um, which is fine in practice. But I don't. I haven't met anyone that I know of who has slavishly adhered to a dollar cost averaging strategy. And certainly you can read so many papers as to why it works and all the math stacks up. Yeah. But the practicalities of it are a little different. But there is a way of dollar cost averaging, which is a type of investing called drip investing. And drip investing is an acronym for dividend reinvestment plan. So whenever a a stock in your portfolio pays a dividend, it automatically buys stock in that company at, at that point in time. And companies directly offer drip um, a drip strategy or start rather a drip plan so you can actually go straight to a company like Johnson & Johnson for example and whenever they pay a dividend they will automatically buy more reinvest it, reinvest it. so cool. you know yeah. um, it's and I guess that would for me be the most practical way of going at a dollar yeah. cost average and especially in periods of kind of volatility like this when people aren't sure it's just kind of a, sure. a way to lessen the risk yeah. a little bit while still yeah. getting exposure Yes, exactly. I mean, the, I, for me, the practical imp- implementation of dollar cost averaging is less wired to the calendar and more wired to my way of life. So, okay, yeah. as I mentioned earlier, I liked to you at 90 something books. Uh, so I liked it at 14 books. And I really believe you put 99% of your effort into researching a stock before you buy it. Yeah. So when that storm inevitably arrives, as it does for every business, you can at least say, well, you know what? I really liked it back then. What's changed? And you can add more. And there within lies a kind of a dollar cost averaging strategy. Cool. Uh, Rory, lockup periods. So Beyond Meat um, reported last week and there was a lot of talk about lockup periods and I think the CEO and the COO selling shares. Yeah, so first of all, what lockup periods are is uh, after a company goes public, usually they will have a contractual agreement with the underwriter that's that's helped them go public, uh, that they the insiders, people who own shares pre-IPO, won't sell them for a specific amount of time. Yeah. Uh, usually kind of between 90 days and 180 days. Uh, and the reason that they do this is to make sure that once the company goes public, the insider owners don't just dump all their shares yeah. because caused heavy downward pressure on the stock. Uh, so the news out of Beyond Meat's earnings call was that they'd come to an agreement with their underwriters, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan, had agreed to waive the lockup period, which was set to expire in October, and to allow a second offering. This was going to be 3.2 million shares were going to be uh, offered. Um, now, usually with an offering, what happens is you're, offer, you're creating new shares to offer them out so you can raise money for the yep. business. Uh, in this scenario, out of the 3.2 million, 2.5 million shares, 3 million of them were, were going to be sold by existing shareholders. So that's okay. the yeah. early investors, that's the CEO, and that's the COO. Um, and only 250,000 were going to be newly issued shares to actually raise money for the business. Now, I don't know about you, but that puts a really bad taste in my mouth, yeah. particularly as it's within the lockup period, mm. um, which is, you know, as much as it is a contractual relationship or a contractual um, agreement between the underwriters and the company, is also kind of a signal to people who invest during the IPO that 
big amount, large amounts of shares are not going to be dumped. Yeah. Quickly following the until the price is stabilized, until the, the the company has found kind of some price discovery in the markets. And would we worry about then like man, management's belief in the company if they're offloading uh, high, high amount of shares like that? Well, I mean, like if you look at the uh, how you know clearly management had a number in mind when they IPO'd this company back at. <laughs> what was it, $25 a yeah, share or something, something like and it's gone up about eight or nine folds. So they clearly don't think that the company is worth what it's worth <laughs> at the moment. Otherwise, they would have insisted yeah. on a higher IPO price. Yeah. Um, but anyway, look, that's 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 what happened. The offering's taken place now. Um, and uh, it's not the first time that a company has, has engineered its way around this. Um, in 2014, GoPro announced a similar offering that allowed its founder, Nick Woodman, to sell shares one month ahead of the lockup period expansion. And shares of GoPro are down around 93% since that announcement. So, um, yeah, just yeah. beyond me, shareholders, <laughs> keep your eyes out. Presented without comment. Okay, so we'll move on now to this week's elevator pitch. So this week I decided to rub some salt in your wounds and ask you guys to recount the sell you regret most, so the stock that you sold in the past that you regret most. I'm going to give you 60 seconds for this. Emmett, I'm going to come to you first. Um, yeah. The stock you regret selling most. Go. It's an easy one for me. It's the Sleep Number Corporation, ticker symbol SNBR, which was once known as Select Comfort. They make and sell beds under the, under the Sleep Number name. This was a stock I bought something like 14 years ago for around 16 bucks a share. And the company had raving evangelistic customers that cited that there was never a more comfortable bed on the face of the planet. However, the company faced a whole pile of challenges uh, and problems that started to force the share price down. So against my own hunch, a few years later, I took the lead from a wonderful investor I know and sold at something like 25 cents a share. Now, the reason my hunch said hold was that in around the same time, the company appointed a new CEO who was in the process of firing everyone at the top table. He wasn't saying much in the media, but absolutely had a plan. And sure enough, today, some 10 years later, that share price is about 44 bucks and 33 cents. So had I bought three <laughs> grand's worth of shares that day, it would, worth be, it would be worth over half a million today. So again, around the same time uh, as my sell, I, um, I was studying from a master's in business strategy and I happened to be deep into a chapter on the characteristics of a successful turnaround. Uh, so between studying it and living through Sleep Number, I learned a very valuable lesson that I apply today. And as listeners might recall my Dell story about it growing 1600 fold during the 90s. Um, and I obsessed on finding other Dells. I, I, I have a similar list of attributes I look for or a company's in deep turnaround mode. Thank you, Sleep Number. I learned an expensive lesson. Ouch. Ouch. A minute Ouch. 30. Yeah. Oh. You've 90 seconds. The key point you know, was I can't, I can't even compete with that. That's <laughs> that insane. is. Like, yeah. why I think that, like I was okay. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> don't ruin it before you do it. Yeah, right? I've yeah, more gray like, hair, this, this but don't worry. This is going to be as impressive. It's not. It's way. not as. <laughs> it's not something to be proud of anyway. I know, but Go. still, just for shock value. <laughs> uh, the one I regret is Twitter. It was one of the very first stocks I bought. I think I bought it around the time Jack Dorsey had returned to the company, and I kind of really believed that he was going to come back. And not necessarily pull Steve Jobs on it, but I'd seen the success he's had with Square, and I thought he was quite a visionary. And um, I held—I think I bought them for around kind of twenty-six dollars a share or something. And for about two, three years, I just watched it just go down over and over again. They—they they were really slow at bringing out new products, and they missed their numbers at quarter in, quarter out. 
and I think I sold it for about 16 or something took a big loss maybe at least 50% and since then it's back up in the kind of in high 40s 50s yeah. because uh, I was focusing on the wrong thing I was looking at the, the numbers when I should have been thinking about what I see now which is that even though it wasn't growing a user base it was becoming far more important and a far more valuable piece of uh, asset to have in the world so that's my biggest regret I'd, I'd still love to own it today Yeah The company started doing better when Jack Dorsey got the nose ring I think Yeah maybe we're going to grow that beard <laughs> uh, I think there can be only one winner for I think in pain levels for that yeah, it's, it's for Emmett um, So that's about it from this week's Stock Club don't forget all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. And if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode, make sure to get in touch on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club 2. And if you're enjoying it, please leave a review for us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. From all of us here, we'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. <laughs>My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards... Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.